Well, hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to continue our examination of risk. So as always, please follow us on LinkedIn and make sure you subscribe so you can always get the latest updates. Now, on our 31 July episode, number 42, entitled Risky Business, we covered the basics of risk and risk assessment. We discussed what is risk, why manage risk, define GRC and IT governance, investigated compliance requirements, identified reasons for conducting a risk assessment, offered tools for measuring risk, terminology, definition of risk, components, how risk assessments relate to risk management, five responses to risk, our US and ISO standard documents that set forth risk management process, and the three major types of risk assessment. Now, if you haven't listened to that episode already, let me suggest that you add that to your podcast list. Now, what we're talking about today certainly is understandable on its own, but having that baseline of knowledge is really important in your professional capacity as a security leader. So today I wanna to start out with a FAIR risk model. FAIR is a factor analysis of information risk, and this model is managed by the FAIR Institute and the Open Group. And the model is represented kind of almost like a uh, org chart, and I want to kind of walk you through it. Again, I don't have anything visual up in front of you right now because it's a podcast, but let me explain a little bit. At the very top, we have the concept of risk. Now, risk is going to consist of two major components, loss events frequency and then loss magnitude. Basically, how often can it happen and then how bad can it occur? Now, when it comes to loss event frequency, how often can it occur? You've got your threat event frequency, which is how often does the, the threat or the bad actor show up? And then the vulnerability, what is your exposure of your asset to that particular threat? And then we can break those down even further. Your threat event frequency is a product of how frequently will that threat come in contact with you? And then what's the probability it's going to take action? Now, I'm going to walk through this in a couple of minutes, so don't worry about it. I'll give you a couple of examples so this will all settle out. Um, vulnerability could be a combination of threat capacity, how strong is this threat, and then what's your resistance? Can you hold off on it? Uh, that's kind of the left side. So loss event frequency, breaking into the threat event frequency and your vulnerability, and each of those breaking down a little bit more. On the right-hand side, loss magnitude is your primary loss and your secondary loss. And then in your secondary loss, how often does that happen and what's the magnitude? Okay, a lot of terminology thrown at you really early in the podcast. So let's break it down and take sort of an example. Let's take a concern about the risk of a hurricane. All right, so I have a home in Florida and therefore during hurricane season, that's something that we're concerned about. What's the risk? Do you go ahead and A, even move to Florida? Then B, if you're an insurance company, do you offer policies for homeowners in Florida? And if you do, how much are you gonna charge them? And so this represents in a business decision. So let's break it down in this FAIR model. So we talk about the risk, and in this particular case, we're talking about the risk of a hurricane damaging your home. We say, first of all, what's the loss of end frequency? How often do hurricanes show up in Florida? We can figure that out. There's a lot of data. There's over 100 years worth of information that allows us to estimate what our loss event frequency is going to be. That is to say, how often do we expect something to go, you know, show up and cause some damage? Now, 
we can't just say, hey, National Hurricane Center expects to see 14 named storms, of which four will hit Florida, and two of them will be at least Category 2. Ba-da, ba-da. That doesn't really tell you the risk of your house, does it? So we find out that we have to go a little bit more detail. So when we break down that loss event frequency to get a meaningful number, we have to look at the threat event frequency and then your vulnerability. Now, that hurricane data starts to come a little bit more useful. Hey, I can look at the number of hurricanes, how bad they're going to be, how often they're going to occur. That's my threat event frequency. But we still need to break that down a little bit further because that model says it's nice that you have that, but you have two components. Your contact frequency, how frequently will this threat, in this case a hurricane, come in contact with your asset, and then what's the probability of action? Now we're actually kind of getting down into the details. When we look at the, say, the contact frequency, how often are you going to have a hurricane show up where you live? Florida's a big place. Doesn't look that way necessarily on the map, but if you try to drive from, let's say, Pensacola to Key West, you're going to be on the road 14, 15 hours. It's just a long drive. I mean, the state's kind of curved around a little bit, but yeah, it's big, a lot bigger than it initially thought when I moved down there. So hurricane could hit the Keys, have no effect up at Pensacola. It could hit Pensacola, have no effect in Miami. It could hit Jacksonville, usually doesn't, or Tampa, usually don't have a whole lot there. And you find out then that your contact frequency then becomes a lot more specific. Yes, we know that there's a threat out there. Yes, we know they occur so many times, but how many times will they come in contact with you? Now, when I moved down to the Tampa area, I remember they said, oh, this is special. We haven't had a hurricane since the ninth, early 1920s. It's been like 100 years. Well, we've had two or three come through in the last several years. And instead of people saying, yeah, oh, yeah, this is a magic place. It's on the west coast of Florida. And then hurricanes have to kind of curb around. It doesn't do that way. It depends on how you look at risk. We'll talk a little bit later about Monte Carlo analysis. But if you think about a casino and going to a roulette wheel, 30 eight numbers on a typical roulette wheel. And if you did a hundred spins, you would statistically find that some of these numbers are going to have zero or one or two, maybe even three hits, maybe four, probably not going to have 38. But statistically, it's not unreasonable after only a hundred spins to have some number that has not yet come up. Now, after a hundred thousand spins, they're all going to average out. And so if you have a short observation period, it's very difficult to figure out what the actual numbers are. And so my thought is when I moved into the Tampa area is that, yeah, statistically, we've just been kind of on a dry spot. Now, when I grew up in Buffalo, we used to kind of root for the Buffalo Bills all the time. And they had gone through some really long losing streaks. Northwestern lost 38 games in a row. And so we would root for our football team on what we call the do theory. Hey, we're due for a win. I mean, we can't keep losing forever. But of course, that doesn't really have a basis in logic with respect to risk. We have to go ahead and consider independent events independently. So now we have the contact frequency. How often is a hurricane going to come to my town? And then the probability of action. Is it actually going to do some damage to you? The combination of that is going to give you your threat event frequency. Yeah, a hurricane came by. Remember, Hurricane Hermine came by. It just clocked in at exactly 74. So it barely qualified as a hurricane. Went out to the beach watched it. Yeah, a lot of rain, a lot of wind, not a lot of damage. All right. And so in that particular case, our loss event wasn't so bad. Well, the other half of loss event frequency, in addition to your threat, is your vulnerability. Now, if I'm in a home that's built to 
post-2001 Miami-Dade building code, then that means your ground floor is all cement block and your roof is held on there with toenails, not that kind of toenail, but nails that are hooked in there and then attachments. There's a lot that goes in there to a modern building. And as a result, you've got a pretty solid resistance to a hurricane. So your vulnerability your, is broken down to threat capability and resistance strength. Now, if you're in a manufactured home, also known as a trailer, you're probably a lot more at risk because it's not going to do so well. And then the threat capability is what we would typically think of as a hurricane strength. Is it a category one, two, or five? All right. Cat one threat going up against a modern home is going to give you a fairly low vulnerability, which means your loss event is going to be pretty low, and therefore you're reasonably low risk, and you can get lower insurance. Now, that tells you just the probability side of how often this is going to occur. But don't forget, there's a second half of risk. How bad can it be? What's your loss magnitude? Or your primary loss magnitude sounds pretty straightforward. That's, for example, the damage you actually have. So if you have a server and somebody pours a cup of coffee down the back of it accidentally and you fry your server, well, your primary loss is replacing that piece of hardware. That's pretty straightforward. But your secondary loss could be a lot more, right? Secondary loss is how much business did we not close because our website was down because someone poured coffee down our web server. And we might find out that the secondary loss could be significantly worse than the primary. And it doesn't have to be coffee or a server loss business. It could be things such as legal actions and getting sued in court or regulatory fines, etc., as a result of what happened. Well, now that if we go ahead for that loss magnitude, primary loss could be, for example, damage to your house, but secondary loss might be disruption for your family, etc. Now we've got kind of a bigger model to take a look at. And we've got inputs that allow us to then calculate up to an element of risk. From that, we can make a business decision based upon the loss event frequency and the loss magnitude as we broke it down into those lower terms again. And we'll provide you links so that you can go ahead and take a look at that uh, visually. But the FAIR model then is a way to really quantify the values of risk. And compare that, for example, to a risk matrix. We might have seen things such as, well, we have a low likelihood or a medium impact uh, or a heat map that says this is a green and this is a blue, and so therefore it comes to a green or this is a yellow and a red. All those are different ways to express risk. But to a large extent, there's some, well, hand-waving involved when we go ahead and we try to provide that qualitative risk assessment display. FAIR allows us to go ahead and get more into the quantitative values. And what we're looking at then is we want to have a mathematical approach to estimate our risks. So for example, if I have an output of my FAIR model, it says, I go to management and said, I've got a 90% confidence that if we encounter a ransomware attack in the next year in our current environment with our current defenses, our costs are likely to be between three and $5 million. Well, that's a statement I can take to the board because I've now been able to quantify something with a pretty high confidence factor. And of course, anything that we're talking about here in cybersecurity, ultimately for us as a leader, has to turn into a business decision. And the board could have different responses. They can accept that risk. Yeah, we can live with that. We'll take our chances. If they 
want to take their chances, then they can accept that risk. But remember, do not accept risk on behalf of your organization if it is not your place to do so. We had found situations in the past, Jerome Caviel with Societe Generale and uh, Nick Leeson with Barings Bank, where employees who were not that high up in the hierarchy accepted a fantastic amount of risk in the billions and lost as a result of making some really bad trades. And that was a result of a failure of controls and things like that that allowed people to actually do something like that. Nonetheless, uh, accepting risk is typically ought to be kicked up the stairs to the appropriate level. Now, we provide in many organizations a threshold at which point you can make a decision. Federal government does that. They say below a certain dollar value, just put in your corporate credit card, government credit card. We're not going to have to go through a whole RFP process to go ahead and acquire something for a few bucks. However, if it's a larger risk, someone more senior should take that decision. So we could accept it. We could mitigate it. Now I can better evaluate if the cost to fix it is worth it. So I understand. Talking to our CISO, as a board member here, that you have about 90% confidence that if we don't do anything differently, that within the next year we may be looking to a three to five million dollar cost for ransomware. Yes, boss. All right. Well, what's your proposal? We believe that if we put this security training in place, if we put this DNS intercept in place, if we put this technology in place, whatever it happens to be mail filtering, that we can reduce that risk significantly. And now we believe that the probability goes way down. And we think that we can avoid that three to $5 million costs. And now instead of it, a 90% confidence, it's maybe down to 10% chance. All right, what's that going to cost? Here's the purchase orders. They're obviously a lot less than $3 million. It's a good deal. All right, sign the dotted line. Press hard, you're making three copies. Best closing line ever. We could transfer the risk. Just go out and get insurance. Made a $5 million insurance policy, but be careful, as I mentioned before, insurance does not really ensure that your organization keeps going. Cyber risk insurance and business interruption insurance really only provide for the orderly demise of your organization, because while you're out of action, you might be able to collect an insurance check, but you're not able to keep your customers happy as you can't deliver what they would need. And then when you come back, they're like, yeah, we had to go to somebody else. We could share the risk. Basically, you could rank this risk with others and we could figure out which ones we want to go ahead and combine it with, or you could just avoid the risk entirely. Hey, no more email. Unlikely, but that's, of course, on that list of things that we covered in the first episode of actions and responses to risk. But let's, let's go back to basics and look at the core of risk management. Now, risk management is about understanding, managing, and mitigating risks. And to implement effective risk management, you need to have good executive decisions made. Now, executives need accurate forecasts and models that'll identify accurate probabilities. And this is where FAIR comes in. That's a great book called Measuring and Managing Information Risk. It's by Jack Freund and Jack Jones. Put a link to it on our show notes. You can find it on Amazon. And you also find it at the FAIR Institute. If you're a member, I think they give you a copy. And I'm also going to reference the open group guides on FAIR risk analysis, which are available online as well. And I'm going to lay, refer to the latter to lay out some of these foundational concepts. So these are great reference documents. And what they do is they explain the FAIR risk stack. And the open group defines this risk stack as an accurate risk model, which then allows you to make meaningful measurements, 
which then create an opportunity to do effective comparisons resulting in well-informed decisions, which then means you're doing effective management. Therefore, if we follow that risk stack, a more accurate risk model gives us better management effectiveness. And isn't that what we're really all about? Now, be careful. There's a difference between risk assessment and risk analysis. Risk assessment is a broader term. It includes process and technology that identify, evaluate, and report on risk-related items. Risk analysis uses measurements and estimates to provide an overall statement of probable frequency and magnitude of loss. So when we saw the fair risk analysis, we talked about the measurements and estimates. Now, risk management will include both the risk assessment as well as the treatment and the monitoring that follow on with that. And then ultimately, overall, there's a risk governance, the organizational oversight of the entire process. So we think of governance overlooking risk management, which includes risk assessment, which has the risk analysis. It gives us a hierarchy of this terminology. And I only point that out to make sure that if you want to be a little bit more precise when you're discussing with others where you are in your process, are we simply down there in the weeds doing risk analysis, looking at the numbers, or are we doing an overall assessment looking at the process? Are we in management, at treatment and monitoring, or governance, complying with everything else that we have to? One of the sets of concepts that are explained here in the FAIR model and the open uh, documents with respect to the open group are the following. The concepts of the difference between accuracy and precision, subjectivity and objectivity, prediction and forecast, and possibility and probability. So let me define each of those and we'll take a look at what that means. When we talk about accuracy versus precision, we have to have accurate inputs to create meaningful outputs. Now, accuracy is when the observed event lies within your original estimate. For example, did it rain today? If you watch the weather forecast in the morning, it says it's going to rain today. Did it? Is it accurate? Precision is the estimate of that range. For example, did we have exactly 0.05 inches of rain today as it was indicated? And be careful of excess precision. I remember back in chemistry class, physics class, things like that, talked about significant figures. And you can't add more significant figures than your measurement provides. That is to say, I can't say this is three millimeters and that's eight millimeters. So the area is 24.000000 square millimeter. No, I have to be able to keep my estimate, basically my output, the precision is based on the input. Now, Alexa comes to mind on that one. Uh, my wife has an Alexa. I don't like it. I call it a spy. Uh, I don't talk to her. We're not on speaking terms. And nonetheless, what happens is she'll say, uh, Alexa, it's going to rain today. And it says, it might rain today. There is a 63% probability of rain at 2.04 p.m. with a total of 0.16 inches. Like, are you kidding me? Who comes up with that stuff? Somebody needs to listen to this podcast. They're trying to be like really, really precise. And that great precision really isn't terribly helpful because I look at it and you're like, meh. Usually it's like it's a 51% chance, at which point you can be right, you can be wrong. All right. Now, think about if you're playing darts. You could be accurate, meaning that you're going to get somewhere on the dartboard. 
Every time you throw the dart, it scores. That's kind of most people, before you've had a few beers, you can go ahead and get some numbers. Be nice to be precise. They have a nice, tight grouping. But you could be precisely wrong. You could get three darts, ding, 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 all outside of the dartboard. Ideally, you like to be both. All right? Triple 20, triple 20, triple 20, bam, bam, bam. But, or bullseye if you're aiming for that. Or you could be neither. You could be all over the place. Now, what's acceptable? Think about it. Would you rather have somebody who is precise, but could be precisely wrong, that is, misses all their shots? Or would you rather have somebody who's accurate, that they're always in the money? May not be in the bullseye, but they're in the money. So accuracy often is more valuable for us. Now, to increase the probability that our estimate is accurate, we're going to reduce our precision a little bit, meaning we're going to go ahead and say, hey, it's okay if you're on the target, rather than to say you have to be in the bullseye. For example, our goal here is to come up with what we call useful precision. That term means that it's actionable. It's not helpful to go to management and say, hey, I need a new EDR solution. It's going to cost exactly $31,337. That's my requisition. When it really doesn't, because you don't know, because you're just guesstimating, because you haven't talked to the vendors yet. Or it doesn't really help to go to the boss and say, how much is that EDR solution? Well, between $1 and $1 million. <laughs> No, that's, that's something useful might be, our preferred vendor solution should cost between $35,000 and $37,000, depending upon when we buy. That's useful precision. It's not exact. doesn't have to be exact, but I could take action on that as a manager. I can say between $35,000 and dollars okay, I see what the risk reduction is in there. That makes sense. Go buy it. So when we talk about accuracy versus precision, be careful about trying to be overly precise. You can be kind of uh, to the point where you're precisely wrong. Second concept, subjectivity versus objectivity. Subjectivity is the result of biases, personal preferences, could even be lack of knowledge. And I think it was Henry Kissinger said, the only way to be completely certain of a topic is to know everything about it or to know nothing about it. And today there's an awful lot of, well, to use the old term from a century ago, know nothings. Uh, our news seems highly subjective. We pick designer news that reflects our personal biases. And when somebody tells us something that we don't like, whether it has to do with politics or COVID or vaccinations or you name it, very rarely do we ever have that exchange of ideas where the other party's open to learning a different perspective. We tend to lock ourselves down into our subjectivity, and that just seems to be our culture. Objectivity is supported by facts and evidence and observations. Now, if you're going to be a cybersecurity expert and you're as a leader going to go talk to your management team, strive for objectivity. Even if they're very subjective people, you be the honest broker of information. You're not going to cross-thread yourself with somebody who has different opinions if you simply do the Joe Friday, just the facts. Focus on objectivity when you communicate information to senior management and you will do much better. Third concept or the pair is prediction versus forecast. A prediction says this is going to happen. A forecast says this is likely to happen or it'll happen eventually. So if anybody's ever gone to Vegas, I'd mentioned that before with Monte Carlo, but uh, we'll go back to Monte Carlo. We'll go to the dice table, the craps table. And if you play dice, the way it works is there's a come out roll where if a roller establishes a point, four, five, six, 
8, 9, or 10, then what happens is you start making your bets. And you keep rolling with the goal that you'll eventually hit your point before you hit a 7. And you 7 out. There it goes. All the bets come off the table. And then next roller takes over. Now, a prediction says, there's my next roll. Yo, 11. That one says, yo, it means that they're going to roll an 11. When you go down the table, they hit 11, they get paid. They don't hit 11, the money comes off. A forecast is making your point, for example, you say, hey, I rolled a six. There we go. Here's my bet. And whether it's uh, the placing the bet or however I want to put it on there, I'm going to keep that bet going until either a six comes up, I win, or a seven comes up, I lose. That's a forecast. Now, when we talk about predictions versus, for example, even probability, we can look at a deck of cards. Again, I'm trying to just pick common things that we might be able to relate to. If I draw a card from a deck of cards and predict the next card will be a king of hearts, well, you can be right or I could be wrong. That's your prediction. The problem is, of course, you're going to be wrong a lot more times than you're going to be right. If you do this as a CISO, you're going to lose trust with your executives, and that's really not good for business. It's also bad for your reputation. Now, instead of using predictions, Nothing on my sleeve. Pull a rabbit out of my hat. If you remember Bullwinkle, oh, wrong hat. Instead of saying it's King of Hearts, I could say, hey, the next card, the probability of it being a King of Hearts is about 1 in 52. Assuming no jokers, about 2%. Now, guess what? I'm going to be right 100% of the time. Now, it's not very accurate in our predictions, but if we can try to get to the point where we can improve our numbers become actionable, we do a little bit better. And then possibility versus probability. Something that's possible means it could happen. It's compared to probable, where I could go ahead and calculate a likelihood of things happening. And so if I'm looking at probability, and we'll go back to the, the dice table, I have a friend who likes to go to casinos, and I happen to be in Atlantic City on the 7th of July in 2007. All right, so 7, 7 of 7. And he said, that's a lucky day. I was walking by one of the casinos. I don't do a lot of gambling. I got business and math degrees and things such as that. And so it doesn't excite me. But I happened to notice that where they have the display where it shows the rolls that had occurred, there was seven, seven, seven in a row. And I took a picture of that on my cell phone and sent it off to my buddy saying, here you go. Um, you went ahead. And is it possible? Did you get three sevens in a row at the roulette table? Yeah, I saw it. I didn't watch it happen, but it was there up on the indicator. Now, what's the probability? Well, it's one in 38 times, one in 38 times, one in 38. And that's several tens of thousand to one or something like that. Pretty unlikely, but it is possible. Now, I would more focus on probability than possibility. But Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, had said basically once you've eliminated the impossible, Whatever remains, however improbable, is the answer. So remember that when you're doing risk or you're doing a security investigation and you're like, well, that, I just can't figure it out. Eliminate everything that's impossible. And whatever remains, however improbable, could be your answer. Okay. How do we make decisions using risk? We all have limited resources. We need to run a cyber department like any other business. So we have to look to defend against risks that are realistic. For example, we talked about the hurricanes, and there's a big difference if you're planning for a hurricane in Florida versus planning for them in Nevada. So focus on the things that are likely to cause material loss to the company. If you're out in Nevada, you might want to worry about what happens when we run out of fresh water or the Hoover Dam. Uh, it can no longer generate electricity. I was out there 
last month for Black Hat DEFCON. And oh my goodness, the bathtub ring around Lake Mead is just sort of a catastrophic low level. Nonetheless, different issue. Down in Florida, not running out of water, particularly this time of year where it rains almost every afternoon. Now, what's interesting is when you get to the boundary conditions like New York and New Jersey. What about that? Well, how often do you get a hurricane in New York? Statistically, about every 50 years. If you go back to the 1600s. But yet Hurricane Sandy did a lot of damage. And I remember the city at the time, there's a whole bunch of stuff that had really been damaged. And they say, like, well, we didn't really plan for this. I could get it if you're a corporate planner. You don't need a 50-year timeline to think about the risk of this or that or the other thing like that. But if you're government, maybe you do need to think about something on that longer scale to say, what if this improbable but not impossible events? And of course, New Jersey recently had, I think it was where Hurricane Ida came up through and did a lot of damage there as well, even though it had kind of done a big left hook coming up from the Gulf. And so now we're starting to see that in the past, under normal weather patterns, once every 40 or 50 years, yeah, maybe we get lucky, don't have to deal with it. It seems that we have to expand our realm of possibilities now to include a higher probability of events that in the past weren't. And things change, and you average it out over 100 million years, and it's all going to be about the same. But we have short periods of observation, and we try to go ahead and make effective predictions based upon that. Ultimately, it's the uncertain. That's what risk is, measurable uncertainty. We have to come up with some answer. Now, a key part of using the fair risk model is getting accurate estimates. And we want to focus on getting a calibrated estimate that we have some confidence in. And typically, FAIR is going to use a principle of the distribution. A normal distribution curve suggests that you have a, a range of values where you're concentrated with a single peak, if you will, and then it kind of goes out to the edges. If you look at the question, what's the height of a random person in the United States? There's resource, I did a little bit of lookup. At the 50 percentile, the average male in the United States is five foot nine. And the average woman is about five foot three and a half. All right. At the 90th percentile, the average male is six foot and one half inch. And the average female is five foot seven. The 99 percentile, six, three and a half, and almost five ten for women. Now, it differs around the world. In the Netherlands, the average height is about six foot. Remember when I was over there, I'm looking around going like, wow, I, I don't feel super tall anymore. I'm, normally, I'm, I'm in the 99 point something distribution here in the United States, which is why I like to fly southwest. I'm usually the tallest guy or the second tallest guy on the plane statistically. And because they fly them a lot, I can go right to the exit row and it works out really well. Remember one time a few years back, I was in the exit row, the one where they have the seat missing in front of you. Toward the end of the last boarding group, this really super tall guy coming. He's ducking his head coming down the aisle. It's like, oh my goodness. I wave at him. I have no idea who he is. As a matter of principle, you get my seat. I moved over to the middle seat. Let him sit down. He was seven foot one. He was visiting the United States from Lithuania with his mom. I guess looking for colleges or something like that. And I'm thinking like, wow. Um, yeah, there's no way you'd fit in a regular seat. You can have this one. And what we find then is that if we look at the random person, we could guess, okay, here you are this particular height, but I could build confidence intervals. If I take a look at the statistics and they're available out there, the 90% confidence interval that a random male in the United States would be between five foot four and six foot 1.7 inches. That means 5% will be taller, 5% will be shorter on average because it's a normal distribution centered around it. Now there's binormal distributions and skewed distributions and we're not getting into a statistics class here. 
But the key thing to remember here is that having probabilities with accurate estimates creates more value than just saying risk is medium likelihood and a medium impact. Now I can actually put some numbers behind it. And to get these confidence ratios going, then what we find out is that FAIR recommends having some key inputs or numbers. Uh, the minimum probable value, not possible, but probable. The maximum probable value, the most likely value. All right, so the maximum probable value of running into a random person on the street is not seven foot one. He's out there, Tom sat next to him, but that's not very probable. It's possible though, but the point is we focus more on the probability. And then the most likely value, and then we build some confidence levels. And ideally when our confidence levels, we wanna get what we call before useful precision. And that's pretty much around the 90% confidence level. If we get to the 90% confidence level, our precision is useful. So let's take a step further and see how this FAIR model can be used at a high level for protecting risk. Let's say a criminal organization might steal customer data from an organization from phishing attacks. And so we'll start with the risk statement. Notice that we had three things. We talked about the asset. The asset is that's what's being attacked. That is to say the customer data, which could be stolen. The threat. Criminal gangs, criminal organizations performing phishing attacks against their organization. And then the effect, the loss of confidentiality for customer data. Now notice the effect usually corresponds to confidentiality, integrity or availability, loss of critical data for most cyber examples. And that kind of fits into our, our area of what we're used to. I'm not talking about hurricanes or anything like that. Now to break the risk down, we need to determine how frequently will this event occur, our loss event frequency, as well as determine how much money might the organization lose each time this event happens. That is to say your loss magnitude. And if we look at our organization, there's probably some data we could observe. Perhaps we see studies from an industry that say 1% of all emails contain a phishing attack. And if we created email servers and found we get 10,000 emails a month, then on average, we would expect to have 100 phishing attacks per month. And we might also look at the cost of a data breach from studies like the Verizon Data Breach Report. And at a high level, see the average data breach cost for a large company is $4.24 million. If we just multiplied these two numbers, 100 per month times 4.24 million, $424 million a month is quite extreme. And that's probably not at all correct. So we need to look a little bit closer. 100 phishing attacks isn't the loss event frequency, is it? because not every phishing attack will be successful. User might not even read the email. Malware may not work on a fully patched Chrome browser. The malware may be designed for a laptop, but the email is read on an iPhone, etc. Each of these are items that are reason that could lower the loss event frequency, our mitigations, lower it. So although it's out there, we're less vulnerable. Remember our model, we got a hurricane coming, but we're in a nice solid building. We've got malware coming in, but we've got mail filtering, we've got sandbox detonation, we have tests, all these other cool things that we can use to reduce our risk. So to get a better understanding of what the true loss event frequency is, we need to understand how frequent the threat is likely to occur, as well as the percentage of threat events that will result in loss events. So we think that our antivirus, our email security, our web proxies, our data loss prevention solutions lower the vulnerability or the threat of a successful loss event by 99%. Now we're really down to about one attack per month to worry about. Now loss magnitude is another item we can deconstruct. Typically it's broken down into two key areas, as we said before, the primary loss or secondary loss. The primary loss is a direct impact and the secondary loss is a result or could result from damage to other stakeholders. Sure, loss examples could be in the form of 
pretty much six types. Loss of productivity. If your payment system goes down, your sales staff can't close the deal. The cost of responding to an incident. That could occur from legal counsel, forensic fees, uh, breach notification, etc., hiring in, uh, consultants, etc. The replacement cost. Replace or repair an asset that's lost or damaged or destroyed. The loss of competitive advantage. If you lose intellectual property, how might that decrease your market share relative to your competitors and even might also impact your stock price? Fines and judgments that could come from legal or regulatory damages and reputational damage from customers who just go to switch to another provider, another competitor, because they don't want to do business with you anymore. So all these things then represent different ways that we could experience loss. So instead of looking at a market average of $4.2 million per data breach, we might want to think about the numbers applied to our organization. So let's say we have 10,000 customers in our database. If we believe the average cost of data loss is $200 per record because we have healthcare data, then the estimated monetary loss from the system, if all of our records are compromised, would be about $2 million. Now you can look at the Verizon data breach report, which will show you that most customer data is valued between $150 and $200 per record, depending upon the type. Usually healthcare and financial data are the most expensive. And if we put all this back together, we can see one event per month at a $2 million breach cost is a rough order estimate. Now FAIR also introduces the concept of a Monte Carlo simulation, because what happens if you have a complex model instead of a simple normal curve? We could then use computers to simulate thousands of events and then determine how likely something is to play out. So rather than simply saying we have one data point of one event per month at 2 million, we can simulate 10,000 events, come up with the distribution curve, and we might see in these simulated events that one event where the attack is blocked, it would have caused maybe $6 million of loss or one successful attempt where there's $800,000 of loss or et cetera. And sometimes we might find out that event, that the attack is blocked, no loss, attack, we thought it was blocked, it's not blocked, all of a sudden it got through. What about if this went there? What if it went left? What if it went right, et cetera? All these Monte Carlo simulations, the tool would really help us with those things. And ultimately, we might come back to IT leadership with a risk assessment that says, we believe we have an 80% chance that we'll experience a phishing attack that could result in $2 million of risk in the next two years. So 30% chance it could be as high as $5 million. Now, here's where you play your other card. These mitigations will reduce our likelihood down to something, 10%, whatever, 5%, whatever is actionable. Overall, you can see how providing this type of information could be really helpful to your organizations. Now, a couple of things to reflect on before you try rolling this out. The forecasts are only as good as the data being put into the tool. If you have a qualified data scientist inputting values, you're probably gonna have great data. However, if you have a thousand individuals that have only used this tool once, there's a high likelihood they won't understand how to fill out the tool correctly, and they result in bad data inputs and then maybe terrible data outputs. If you deploy FAIR, it takes time people to fill out the data. Also takes good data to determine the likelihood of the threat event. And oftentimes, this data is hard to obtain. Organizations can often just improve the sophistication of the risk matrices to get many of the same benefits of FAIR without all the headaches. For example, instead of a likelihood matrix that says low, medium, or high, what if you provided values for that that had five levels showing once a month, once a quarter, once a year, once every two to five years, once per decade?
using that as your frequency for your impact. Instead of low, medium, or high, you could say something that impacts less than $5,000, 50000 under 500000 5 million, 50 million. This new matrix might give you an event that says, we think a once a quarter, we're going to experience a $50,000 event. Now, that too is actionable. You can wrap your head around this a lot easier than perhaps filling out a fair model and doing all these Monte Carlo simulations. So hopefully you've seen the idea that risk models are really only about as good as the information in. It's been said, garbage in, garbage out. Well, author Nito Cobain says, not actually, it says garbage in, garbage stays. And then it gets pregnant and gives birth to triplets, which means if you've got bad process, if you have bad information, you're going to make bad decisions and you're going to continue to make bad decisions going forward. And therefore, what we're looking for is ultimately in the world of cybersecurity, we're all into risk management. We want to reduce the likelihood of bad activities in our organization to an acceptable level by managing our risk, by communicating this information, and ensuring that management can make informed risk-based decisions. Now, if we think about it from that perspective, perspective, our role as a cybersecurity executive is a lot more clear. We need to be focused on collecting, managing, monitoring, and updating our risk profiles using acceptable tools that are defensible because board's not going to complain. What are you using? I'm using the FAIR model. It's an international standard. You're fine with that as compared to, well, I whipped something up over the weekend with an Excel spreadsheet. A little bit less likely to be defendable. And then you also have a way to communicate with others. Your fellow professionals will understand that. You're more credible because you've got a more solid basis. So hopefully you've found this episode helpful for you, wrapping up our information. There's still more on risk. I might even do a third episode on risk simply because I've come up with some other information that's really kind of useful. But for now, I want to leave you with the concept of the FAIR model. The FAIR model, which, as we said before, takes a look at risk as a combination of the loss event frequency, how often is it going to occur, and the loss magnitude, how bad can it be, and we decompose that down into frequencies and vulnerabilities and probabilities and capabilities. And all these things represent useful tools for you as a cybersecurity leader. So thanks as always for listening. This is the CISO Tradecraft Podcast, G. Mark Hardy, your host. And until next week, stay safe. Take care.